G'day and welcome to the Hunting Connection Podcast. My name is Zach Williams and I am your host. Here we'll connect you with hunters, fishers and outdoor enthusiasts from around the globe. This podcast will share hunting and fishing stories including past experiences and tackle the tough hunting stereotypes our community faces. We hope to be a positive influence to those outside the community while also having a laugh along the way. Hope you enjoy the podcast. G'day and welcome to another episode of Hunting Connection Podcast. On today's episode, we have Ross from High Caliber Cleaning Supplies. How are you going? Good, mate. I'm really good and I'm super excited to be uh, chatting to you. I've been, a, I've been actually a long-time fan of yours, to be honest. <laughs> Thank you very much, man. I'm, I'm a fan of your products. I've got the uh, cleaning mat as my, as my desk mat and that's not a product placement. I'm pointing to a bottle of the um, yeah, degreaser. I've seen that's, that up there. That's just where it sits. So. <laughs> no, I reckon when I first came to Australia, um, I, I, there was a, maybe a bow hunting group on Facebook and stuff, and I watched a lot of your videos, a lot of your carp, like yep. bow fishing for carp videos. Yeah, it's great um, fun. Yeah. I followed everything thick and thin, man. I loved it all. It was great content. Ah, no, that's awesome, mate. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's the audio side of stuff's a bit easier to do than the um, video side of stuff. I've seen the quality that everyone else was putting out, and I'm like, yeah, there's no way I'm going to compete, so I'm not even going to try anymore. No, but you had the content, I think, rather than the quality, you had the content. Yeah, yeah, that it helped being single back then and kid-free. <laughs> yeah. How many years have you been doing that kind of stuff on social media? Um, I probably started... 2012 2013 um on the bow fishing side of stuff and then bow hunting and yeah just gradually building up building up i um had the uh facebook page williams co bow hunting and fishing and that yeah that got some good traction behind it but um when the whole um cat cat saga went down um facebook yeah so that I actually page. yeah i saw all that yeah on live on kind of not live but yeah yeah the the cat getting shot with the bow yeah so what i was i I didn't know if i was going to mention that or not but yeah i was i'm well aware of it yeah no that's it's it's cool so the original story was i went out to a um riverland property here in south australia and bow hunted a bunch of feral cats with a friend posted the photos up on the hunting social media sites and um then i started getting hate roll through death threats rolling through all of that type of stuff um, and then I got contacted by a news ABC news reporter that my mum knew and he'd asked if I wanted to do an article about the hate and that. So we went to Kangaroo Island and met up with one of my mates over there and did that whole ABC thing. And, um, yeah, my mate shot the cat with a bludgeon cause I told him to use bludgeon so it didn't tear the cat in two because he i'm pretty sure he's yeah. using a three blade or um expandable broadhead i'm like oh we'll look better you know all the cats i've taken and hairs and stuff have all been with small game points like the rubber bludgeons and it stopped them in their tracks no worries but i shoot 70 pounds he was shooting 63 64 pounds so it hit it hard and then he's put another one in it and yeah, it, it didn't look the greatest on TV, but it it is what it, it is. Um, but yeah, it was everywhere for a while, and you know sometimes any publicity is good publicity, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know, it's a tricky one for sure. It got people talking about the subject, so like 
Joe Rogan spoke about it. Um, the threatened, wow. the threatened species commissioner wasn't talking much about feral cat stuff beforehand. And then after that, they started, everything was feral cat. So it seemed to get the conversation rolling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so enough about me. Where are you from, Ross? <laughs> uh, so I originally born and bred in the UK, um, moved out here 2011, uh, for work. Uh, and have been here ever since. Yeah, beautiful. Whereabouts in, in the UK? So I, moved, uh, I was from Suffolk, which is yep. uh, just north of London in East Anglia. Um, uh, lots of good uh, hunting and fishing there. Um, so, yeah, and obviously, yeah, from a young age, did both. That's awesome. Um, one of the previous guests on the podcast was up near Bristol, and, yeah, he grew up that he he just started getting into a lot of small game on the farms and stuff like that and um nothing massive but yeah watching all the um UK deer stalker pages with the roe deer and everything else that they they have over there that they can chase is is pretty cool it is mate yeah and like you know like i remember coming here and i'm like oh you know can you can you fish for trout here? And they're like, oh yeah, everything's so close man like you're never more than 2 to 4 hours away from <laughs> from a river and i'm thinking what four hours that's bloody that's from one side of england to the other <laughs> like i've got a river two minutes from my house i've got forests where i can hunt four minutes from my house like what do you mean i've got to travel two hours and like, what do you mean that's close but hey different country here <laughs> yeah man um so you did a bit of well just leading on to a next question anyway um so how did you get into hunting and fishing um, so this is a story I do remember like it was yesterday. I, I don't know if I was even in school yet, but, um, my mum and dad per se, like my direct family in that sense, weren't massive, um, hunters or fishers, but my, uh, my uncle and a lot of people around me were, uh, cousins and everything else next door neighbor. And I remember going out to like a $1 or $2 shop. We call it something differently in the UK, you know, maybe like a one pound shop or something. That, and um, there was like my first fishing kit on the wall. And I was with my grandma for the day. She was looking after me and she was like, oh, I'll buy you this. Anyway, half the stuff didn't work. <laughs> Managed to borrow some hooks and some split shot and stuff from the next door neighbor. My grandma took me to a, a local reservoir that was a free kind of farmer's irrigation reservoir and i ended up catching lots of what you guys call uh redfin we call perch and rudd and roach which are yeah like a silvery type fish with red fins but not not a red fin they're, they're yeah. more of a yeah they're slightly different fish i think they're here in australia too as well um but yeah that was it really and i would have been i wouldn't have even been in school so i wouldn't have even been five years old my uncle was a deer warden for the local council i guess you call him a pro color or a pro shooter here um but yeah there's not many of them and he managed about three or four woodlands um and yeah got into it through him so uh got a lot of small holdings and and smaller farms for shooting small game uh we used to do a lot of pigeon shooting uh 
had a lot of pigeon pie for a while. That's awesome. Uh, organized, helped organize some pheasant shoots, did a, did a, some beating and some pheasant shoots, and and then obviously did a fair bit of deer stalking. My uncle always likes someone to go with him as a hand. Um, so, yeah, I, I was lucky I experienced all of that. And the massive variety of species that we have in the UK, um, you know, whether that be deer species, wing species, uh, you know, whatever, there's there's a huge amount to, to be that's on the on the cards there to be hunted. Yeah, it's a crazy amount of um, different. Well, it's not a crazy amount, but there's there's a few cool deer deer species over there. What is it? It's like roe deer, muntjac, seeker, reds, fallow. Yeah, so we had uh, monk jack were probably like our staple. That was, uh, I guess, the kind of the the samba of Victoria. You know, they're pre- very prevalent here in Victoria, and we had a lot of monk jack. We also had CWD, which is the Chinese water buck, so yep. the Chinese water deer. Um, uh, roe, a lot of roe, obviously native to the UK. The roe deer were. Um, uh, we did shoot a fallow and we shot a red hind in the time that I was uh, hunting with him. But we had, we were well known as having some of the best red heads uh, in the country. Um, you know, size and mass uh, scored on the point system. We don't, we use a different system over there. I can't remember what it's called. Um, but yeah, so yeah, lots of. Uh, deer on offer but yeah just the the birds uh blackbirds crows um pigeon uh, lots of different uh you know pheasants quail um stuff like that that were we you could hunt on farmers fields especially on the peas um when the peas were coming through farmers would almost pay you to set up and um and shoot on them and you could get into the hundreds you could get cricket scores on the pigeon it was so much fun that's awesome um so Obviously, deer are managed completely different in in England um, than they are, yeah. than they are here. What? So, from my understanding, you have your your um, what? Like you said, what your uncle was the, who managed managed these farms. Then people get their deer stalking license. They pay to go go on these properties. Uh- yeah, it's kind of, it's, a, it's a little bit different. So you'd have farms and estates and estate farms, and they would have a, a gamekeeper on those farms. Then you would have council land or public land where people can go and walk their dogs. Um, and then the council would uh, employ um, either a local gamekeeper or, or someone to become deer warden of that area. So there's no, like hey, I want to wake up one day, I want to become a deer hunter, that's all right, I'll just go get my firearms license and I can walk onto some public land. Where I'm from, that didn't exist. There was estates that you could go and hunt on, you could pay for guides, you could get access to private properties if you had the right credentials, but there wasn't this level of of freedom, uh, I get, I don't know if that's the right word, but there wasn't that level of, um, yeah, like there is here in the UK where you could just go to somewhere like the Vic High Country uh, in a legal part um, and then, you know, go off and park your car and, and go for a stalk. That that type of hunting didn't really exist. We also had to phone the police when we were going out, give them a, um, they had a, they gave us a number and we told them where we were going. Um, so if people heard gunshots in the area that, that you know, and they, they phoned the police, they'd be like, yeah, we do have a deer stalker in the area. Cause these, some of the woodlands that we hunted or, 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 or culled, um, were very close to people's properties and, and everything else. So, uh, I remember walking through like, you know, a suburban estate with a with a rifle to go down a little alleyway to then get access to to some woodlands. You know, and um, so yeah, it's 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 quite different. Um, there's no really real wilderness 
not in Suffolk, not where I'm from, um, where where we where we hunted. And so, what's the season um, break up over there for for deer hunting? Uh, I can't remember exactly. I think monk jack mostly were like open all year round, but you could shoot some sort of deer uh, all year round. So it might be like red buck or you know red stag um, in season fallow buck in season monk jack buck in se- and then monk jack doe or or whatever they're, they're all you know even the males and females had different seasons yeah um but yeah i can't exactly remember what they were but i do remember a lot of times sitting in we we call them high chairs you guys call them tree stands sitting in a in a tree stand seeing a deer that was out of season uh you weren't allowed to shoot that one <laughs> and that happened you know more often than than not i bet um, is the fallow and red deer rut, is that around what, September over there? Uh, not sure. And we never hunted rut. Like most of the meat that every, all of the meat was harvested. It had to be, you had to do like an autopsy on the animal, do a kill card for the council for all the cold animals. Um, there was one time that we did shoot a fallow in the rut and it was like the meat was almost you know, unusable. Yeah. Um, you soak it in milk, do all of those things. But yeah, we we didn't we avoided um, uh, shooting them in in that those periods just um, for quality of meat, basically. Yeah, that's the that's another different thing. You have to take it in to go get checked off and um, to a proper butcher almost. Yeah. Well, so my uncle had all those credentials credentials he had butchering he had food hygiene he was actually licensed to be able to sell the meat um him personally and he did make a little bit of a living off doing that um so yeah um so you yeah and if it stinks to high heaven it's it's tricky it's a tricky one to sell you know yeah i've, I've had that had a conversation about that to someone else before um we we're talking about that and yeah it's it's all coming back to me now <laughs> Yeah. So, had you transition into coming over to Oz and then getting into hunting over here? What was the process like for you? Yeah, so obviously always hunted in the UK, came over here on, on business, uh, probably took a year away from hunting and fishing, really just enjoying the big city life of living in Melbourne CBD and working in the CBD. Um, and then went to, I was, I joined, what, what, what? what I can't remember what it was. Um, I don't. I, I was with my partner at the time that I've been with for a long time, and met her. I was only here two or three weeks before we met. It took us a while to get serious, but um, we were at uh, a show. Um, maybe it was a fishing show. Maybe it was a four-wheel drive show. I can't remember. And yeah. um, I probably only had been here a couple of years. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, I'd love to get back into fly fishing, love to get back into hunting. I went to one of these shows, ended up walking away with a fishing rod, joined a fishing club, met some guys in the fishing club that also hunted as well, and then started the slow process of, um, as a non-resident, non-citizen, getting a firearms licence, and, and that took probably six years. What's the process there? So if you're not a um, citizen and... That was yes. is it much different. So to- I applied for a firearms license like anyone would, got knocked back, had to appeal it. Uh, then I had to wait for uh, a different visa to come through for then I could appeal it again. Um, eventually got it. Um, but yeah, it was 
it was a long-winded process. I needed lots of evidence from people in the community, people I'd worked with. Luckily, I'd been in the fishing club for a few years, so I got the the president of the fishing club to write a letter to say that, you know, Ross has joined the fishing club. He's assimilated, assimilated in the community with Australia, um, blah, blah, blah. I got a letter from my uncle in the UK uh, with credentials from the UK from what I'd done in the past, uh, you know, Ross's has had some experience deer stalking blah 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 and, and all this kind of stuff and and basically appealed the rejection it wasn't a rejection it was like we're not going to give you this we're not re- denying you but we're not approving you you've kind of got to prove yeah. us why um and you need this visa so i had to wait for some like evidence to mature get a visa and then um but i was bow hunting in the time in that period uh, so i wasn't like oh i'll, I'll just wait yeah. no i was i was bow hunting in that time that's awesome. Um, so, from my understanding, you can't really bow hunt in the in, in the UK. So you can't. There's a few things that we weren't allowed to do. So we weren't allowed to uh, reload, uh, use reloads. It had to be factory ammo, yeah, and wow. we weren't allowed. To, and bow hunting was outlawed in the whole of the UK. Um, I don't want to get too political or controversial. I can kind of see why in a place like England. Yeah. Um, I can also see that I feel like England's probably a really good place to bow hunt because you're in smaller, tight-knit areas where you can kind of get closer to animals. Obviously, an arrow does not travel anywhere near the distance of a rifle does. It's Definitely probably not. safer in 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 some regards. Um, yeah, and it just feels more, you know, you're in these ancient woodlands that are medieval and R- Robin Hood and everything else going on. Like, it's part of our culture. Uh, but obviously it's outlawed and, and you're not allowed to do it. And and I can I can see why there's been a lot of multiple instances of, of you know, misuse with, with the bow hunting. Archery is huge in the UK, though. Like, it's a massive sport. Yeah. And that's why it's, it's banned as well, is because that whole Robin Hood people stealing game, it's quieter, from my understanding, mm. anyway. That's why it's banned poaching, in the UK. Yeah, poaching's pretty big in the UK, um, you know, I think my uncle had a few, uh, not that he was a poacher, but he had a few poaching firearms, you know, breakdown barrels, stuff yeah. like that. You see the odd thing here, but not really. But, yeah, there's um, rustling and, and poaching, um, yeah, pretty prevalent in the UK. Another thing about the UK, suppressors. You pretty much can only hunt with a suppressor over there. Is that correct? Yeah, dead right. Everything we owned had a suppressor, even our air rifles. That's insane. So good. Yeah. I just got yeah, back. Yeah, you do have to – I'm not sure if you have to apply for it or not. Or you can just get one. But if you say something like, I'm worried about my hearing, boom, it's on the – you know, it's like not an issue at all. And I think very similar to New Zealand, it's pretty easy to get a suppressor in New Zealand. Yeah, you just I mean, walk in I think and get people one. Think, yeah, I think people think that a suppressor makes um, – your rifle completely silent or something. I, I don't know why they're, they're outlawed here. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, but, yeah, everything has a suppressor on it. Yeah, it's because pretty much um, our lawmakers, their firearms experience is watching John Wick and James Bond. <laughs> so they make, all, <laughs> they make all their laws from watching TV shows and movies. <laughs> Well, don't quote me on this, but when I went and applied for my shotgun license in the UK, um, you have to apply for you have to apply for a shotgun. You can just apply for it. You just say 
me, Ross, I want a shotgun, and they have to find out why I can't have one. It's not a right to have a shotgun, but it's like they have to search hard for a reason why you can't have a shotgun. If you want a firearm, it's the other way around. Yeah. You've got to plead with the police really hard. This is why I want a firearm. This is what I want to do. And they'll just keep coming back to you, right? We want you to do this course and this course, and let's, we want to have an interview with you. And why do you want this uh, 243, um, you know, deer hunting caliber? What are you doing with it? Are you hunting deer? Where's the property? Well, for a shotgun, it's like, I want a shotgun. They don't even have to ask why or anything. It's like, yeah, you get it. But that type, that's very traditional in the UK, you know, like wing shooting yeah. and bird shooting with a shotgun. It's It kind of runs in, in the in well, from where I'm from anyway, that, that you know, everyone did it, all my mates did it, more so than deer hunting. And then air rifles, no, no license required for them either, is it? No license at all for an air rifle. I remember my first few air rifles, they just take your like a driving license or something and write your name in the book. But yeah, no license is required. I think you need to be over 16 years old but um, and you, you're uh, capped up to a foot pounds of, I think, 12 foot pounds. Yeah. But some of our uh, gas powered ones, um, uh, they were firearms rated because they were up to like 60 foot pounds. That's insane. It's, it's like as as bizarre as some of the laws are over there. Some of them just make sense compared to Australian firearms laws. Yeah, yeah. It's I, I always, like obviously I've lived in other countries. I now live here, and I'm like, you know, take road for instance. <laughs> Huge congestion in Melbourne. There's like two million cars in Melbourne. There's like ten million cars in my London. most hated place, Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, why like? Why don't they just go, hey, London Council, how do you get your traffic to flow? Oh, oh, that's what you do. You've got less many million cars. We have half that amount. Oh, maybe we'll put that in Melbourne. So, no, <laughs> no, don't learn from anyone else. Just, yeah, I don't know. That's just me on a bit of a rant. But, um, yeah, you know, it does seem weird that, it, you know, I'd love to see the stats of suppressors being used in crime in New Zealand and the UK and then, Australia denying that they're, you know, going to increase crime or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So Firearm Owners United, they did a campaign. I think it was September um, of last year, Suppressor September. So they had a bunch of campaigns and articles where people could mail in their MPs and other government government officials. And um, one of my mates did it. Um, he got a reply back from his MP and um, then his MP asked, asked the firearms branch and they pretty much said, uh, you know, it's a safety concern. We don't want suppressors because it's it's a safety concern. <laughs> We're afraid criminals will break in and take them. Yeah, see, this just doesn't make sense to me. I, I, seriously, if they... Uh, you know, they were they were legal and you could go and purchase them, I'd be the first one out to get one. Oh, I would, after... So I'd, I'd shot a 300 Win Mag in New Zealand my last trip that was suppressed, but I was in such a high and such a rush to shoot shoot the animal that I didn't really take notice of it, where this yeah. time shooting the couple tar and a couple target shots and that to get used to the rifle, it's um, just so much better. Like, I, I went out for a hunt this morning and... Wasn't wasn't successful, but afterwards, you know, I'm just like, I'll just shoot the 270 again just to see what it sounds like not suppressed because that's what I was using in, in New Zealand. And, man, 
just the difference it makes. Like my my ears were ringing for a good fifteen minutes after just two shots, but I there was no ringing whatsoever shooting the suppressed two seventy. Yeah. No, it's definitely going to protect your ears. And I know, um, uh, like a couple, a couple of good mates of mine, one good mate of mine in particular that's a hunter too, and he uh, works in an industry where hearing's huge for him, and he's worried about shooting guns. You know, he's like, "Look, I, I need my ears for my for my job, and yeah. if I could get a silencer, or, or or you could hunt with, you could you know stalk with earplugs, which you can't really do. He he'd be more you know willing to go out a bit more and, and do a bit more of it. But yeah, it's a shame." It's a hard, like, I've I've taken earmuffs out with me before and it's, you know, you're trying to dick around to put them on before you shoot and you don't really want to stalk around with them on because you can't really hear what you're stepping on and stuff. And then you get those noise-cancelling ones as well um, that amplify the noise around you but cut off, up, cut off over a certain decibel. Um, but, you know, it's just something else that you're going to get hot wearing. Like it's bad enough yeah. wearing a beanie or a hat while you're out sometimes if if you're moving fast enough and sweating, let alone wearing earmuffs on top of that. No, you're dead right. But yeah, it's... Uh, uh, Australian gun laws is just so complicated and so silly and we're getting that way with hunting, hunting laws too, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, look, I think everywhere is. It's not unique to Australia though. Yeah, but yeah, everyone else is like even in the US, they don't allow silences. You know, they're slowly swinging around. I, th- I think it's about a year process, but some states and you can get a federal federal license to get them. And some states it's okay, some states it's not. But yeah, even it's it's a silly one. But let's move on to a lighter lighter note. Yeah, let's change subjects. <laughs> what do you do for work? All right, so I work. For, I work at the Fly Fisher in Melbourne CBD, which is basically a fly fishing exclusive tackle shop. Awesome. I've I've played around with fly fishing. I'm freaking terrible at it. I've got a shitty shitty <laughs> rod and a shitty reel, so I'm sure that um <laughs> that accounts for it. And I've all all the flies that I have are all you know you know second third hand flies that that have been passed down from friends and stuff, but. I've flicked so many flies in front of rising carp and not a single single frigate <laughs> friggin' bite. Yeah. I'm terrible. I, I obviously I get um newbies in the shop every day uh that I, I, I chat to and I my biggest piece of advice if someone wants to get into fly fishing is do a one hour casting lesson. First up, like buy the gear, do a casting lesson, get go to a good CCI, so someone that's accredited to teach fly casting. And that's all you need. One hour, they're going to kind of get you the rough technique that you need. You're going to understand what you're doing. Once you kind of get the casting half right, the rest of fly fishing is easy and simple. Probably easier and simpler than than conventional fishing, if you ask me. <laughs> that's just a fly a fly fishing snob, snob snobbiest talking. <laughs> oh, look, that, yeah. Look, well. Uh, I guess I've kind of almost grown up fly fishing, so, uh, you know, for me, it's I'm probably better at that than I am at conventional fishing, for sure. Oh, I definitely respect it. It's it's a cool cool form. I've got a one of my good mates. He he does a fair bit. You know, he, he got right into he, he tying his own flies and, you know, he bought all the jigs and everything to start tying his own flies and, yeah, just sitting behind him while we're fishing the local Adelaide Hills trout streams and just watching him. It's It's pretty cool. 
yeah, no, it is a bit of an art form when you see casting done right. Um, no, for sure. No, I know I, I love it. So I'm the only full timer there, um, and we've got uh, some part time and casual guys. And um, yeah, so host trips um, most of the time, like you know, um, in in the shop, um, selling gear, customer service, all of that kind of gear. But then you know, twice a year or whatever, host host some some nice trips and. Um, yeah, get out and, and fish with our clients. So for someone that wants to get into it and just dabble in it, what do you think of those, you know, those hundred and something dollar pen combos just for someone? Uh, I think you, you start to get a, a combo which is actually castable around the $300 mark. Yeah. And even then it's kind of like you, you probably want to upgrade the, the fly line. Um, you know, it would be like the fly line is like the arrow it's like when people go and they buy a cheapish bow and then they buy like 20 cent arrows you know and like cruddy broadheads that are rusted before you even get them (laughs) like the fly line is just as important as everything else um and 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 i think that yeah uh, buy a buy a a cheap outfit uh but buy buy a 250 dollar 200 dollar fly line straight away to put on that outfit and then you've probably got something castable yeah awesome yeah i've like i said i i think i originally bought one of those pen outfits and failed with that but one of my other um old good mates he got a custom one piece um, blank that someone someone made and he handed that down to me and that's what I currently have but it's still got that shitty pen <laughs> pen um, reel on it with the with the same shitty line that it came with so yeah I mean don't worry too much about the reel but um, the line yeah that's probably your most important piece of gear like you know if i was to give someone someone advice about freshwater fly fishing um spend all of your budget on the line and then whatever's left by by your rod and then scrape the bottom of the barrel for a reel you know yeah uh, and that way you're actually going to have something that's that's castable i mean we all know it with archery gear right we probably all start out with archery gear and every single arrow goes everywhere not where you want it to go and it's not until you start optimizing your gear spending a bit of time tuning it and you buy decent gear that the arrows start going where you want them to go yeah awesome no that's that's some great advice what about for flicking around for carp what type of fly would you recommend for surface feeding carp um i fish a few different flies for carp i I fish a seven weight rod so something a little bit heavier and i fish a line that's got all of its mass up front so a very short tapered line so that gives you a lot of accuracy for close uh quarters fishing and you've almost got to cast the fly into their mouth you know you've got to feed it to them so there's a couple of flies i like um fur flies with a red tail which is like a, a black kind of rabbity kind of fur basically the whole shank and then a red tail uh a woolly bugger which yeah. is a fly that if you if you fly fish you know um and then a carp bitters which is kind of like almost like a a, a woolly bugger crossed with a bit of a saltwatery type pattern as well um just something kind of black and ugly with a bit of color to it maybe a bit of red in it or something as well you know yeah. but mostly a all black fly yeah awesome because yeah, that's that's the only thing that I'd only be interested in catching on a fly rod. I don't think I have the patience to, you know, try for a Murray cod or try for um, try for anything else or trout stuff like that. So, and you know the amount of no, well, 
carp's probably the uh, to me personally i mean i come from the uk but it's probably the number one freshwater sport fish in the world <laughs> yeah i know i um posted a bunch of both bow fishing carp photos in a uk carp group once they were not too happy about that <laughs> no look i i love the the what you do with the bow hunting for carp i think it's awesome and, and they don't know what it's like over here they haven't been it and send the abundant the numbers you know that they're in but um for fly fishing nothing gets in fresh water nothing gets as hard or as technical, uh, and they don't. Nothing fights as hard as a carp either. So to to cast to it, to get that eat, to hook up, and then play it. I mean, that's like the goal for fly fishing, if you ask me. Yeah, the old mud marlin. They they go pretty hard for what they are. They do, and you know, a lot of my customers would be, you know cursing me right now for me saying that um and there's the other half that know what i'm talking about but are probably nodding their heads and agreeing with me but um yeah I, I i love them to be honest and i know that they're hated in australia they've got a very bad name and i understand that i love them for bow fishing without without carp i probably wouldn't have gotten into bow hunting or it would have been a longer progression into bow hunting yeah so no that's awesome apart from the Tackle shop. What else do you do, Ross? Uh, so obviously I do the director of high caliber cleaning supplies, uh, which has been going for a few years now. Um, uh, started it up in the old, uh, you know, the, the time that we all had to stay home from, from work and stay out of anything. Life was put on hold where I actually had the time to be able to. It was a, an idea that I'd had in my head for a while. Um I, I knew uh, a chemi- an oil and, uh, you know, a chemical engineer um, or d- industrial chemist, I should say, that uh, could could make what I wanted. And, um, yeah, it was we had we both had the time. Uh, also, a graphics designer who was a good mate of mine. He had the time, too. And basically, the three of us worked together with my idea. And, and while those two helped me um, get it off the ground, really. So how did it come about? Was it for hunting purposes, fishing purposes? It was 100% hunting purposes, and it was because I was just sick of my rifles and everything else going rusty when I'd spent good money on cleaning products and just, uh, you know, and uh, I knew oils. I was a mechanic before I started at the Fly Fisher. I was a mechanic for 17 years, worked for PSA. That's why I came to Australia. I knew um, liquid engineering when it came to oil and it looked like the oils that were all available, readily available had been developed a hundred to 300 years ago and never been changed. Yeah. Yeah. But rifles have changed massively. Steel technology has changed massively. Back then you were paying nothing for a rifle. Now you're spending big dollars on it and you want to protect those investments. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, you know, it took me a while to, to get some, um, I'm horrible cleaning rifles, you know, I'm one, use it. <laughs> and my uh, 270 was starting to get a bit gummed up, you know, you'd shoot and the bolt would be a bit bit of a bitch to open. And um, I got some of the, the degreaser and I pulled pulled it all apart and cleaned it up and, yeah, it, it shoots beautifully now and it worked a treat. Yeah, well, look, that was like... That was the ethos of the company. Like, if we can't make something better that's already out there, then I'm not going to waste my time. I'm not going to waste consumers' time. Uh, and I wanted everything to be a little bit different than it's already out there. Um, but obviously, there was nothing 
at the time there was nothing Aussie made. No one in Australia yeah. was producing any kind of gun cleaning products like that. No, there's a couple now since I've done what I've done. Um, and yeah, I've just tried to make the best stuff that we possibly can. Money, no object. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely great. And then just like the whole the whole model, like the little bottles of oil, you know, last last a lifetime almost. And then the degreaser. Oh, ridiculous i've done myself <laughs> such a disservice <laughs> you know people like two years later are like mate i'm still on my first bottle i bought two bottles from you i'm still on my first bottle and i hunt every week and i you know two drops covers my entire rifle i've not had a rust spot since so yeah really done myself a disservice but i've made a product that just you know it thins right out but creates that polymetric film film on a barrel and you know if you care about your investment it's the only oil to buy, really, I think. It's, yeah, definitely given my, like, given me more of an understanding of cleaning. I've watched some of the, the cleaning videos out there and, um, you know, there's a Impact Dynamics did a bunch of videos on how to pull um, bolts apart and stuff like that. So, you know, I pulled the whole bolt apart and degreased everything and cleaned it and then oiled everything up and, um, yeah, beautiful. <coughs> I picked... Um, I didn't get it off the website. I picked it all up from a little Mount Barker gun shop here in South Australia, and they've got a bunch of bunch of oils and the degreaser and the mats and stickers and that. So it's like the first thing as you walk in, you see it there on the right hand side on the shelf. Um, oh, that's wicked! Cam, um, who's running stuff in there, he's a big fan of Send It Mate. So as soon as he heard it on Send It Mate, he he started ordering it through the store straight away. Yeah, no, some of the, that that store in particular does very well um, with the product. Uh, got a couple of stores in Victoria that that you know repeat repeat customers and and they order it as well. So um, yeah, I think if you've got a good guy behind the counter that that understands looking after firearms and he's used your product, um, you know, not just a guy there to take a paycheck, then you know it just it sells itself for sure. Yeah, it definitely does. Um... So how long did it take to kick off, kick it off the ground? Uh, uh, I reckon it was from like producing off the oil to actually like selling it legitimately was probably 12 months. And then it was probably 18 months from the first production of the oil to the website and starting to sell it on the website so i sold it a little bit on instagram before we built the website just to see if there was any interest in an aussie made gun oil and if people were happy with what they already had sold really well on instagram just like by uh, like dms yeah and i was like yeah cool I'll, i'll get a website um but yeah we had a like when I spoke to um, the company, so it's, it's a famous company in Australia that makes a lot of oils. They're a well-known name. Um, I know the guy that the, the main, the head honcho there that runs the whole show. Um, when I first kind of spoke to him about what I wanted to do, he's more than happy to help. And I think he thought it was going to be like, oh, we've made stuff like that in the past. This is just going to be, you know, a one-shot wonder. I'll just makes i'll just formulate something we'll blend it we'll come up with how many hours and how many products it's going to take to mix it and blend it we'll bottle it and we'll see how we go and yeah like we this there was a smell and we didn't like that smell we had to change that it was too thick it was too thin so yeah when it was a bit of a roundabout to get the 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 oil right and then then we settled on two oils and i sent pretty much two oils to 
everyone I hunted with and a lot of other people, people like Rob Herbert and uh, a lot of other guys um, in the industry and pretty much everyone just picked one, one of them. They all picked the same one. I was like, yeah, cool. That's the one we're going to go with. It was slightly thinner. It was slightly thinner than the other version. Um, Yeah. And it was, it was, yeah, it was game on from there. And yeah, I've had nothing but good feedback. Yeah, that's awesome. It, it definitely, I, I can't remember if I was following before before you were on Send It, mate. I'm pretty sure I was. Um, but, yeah, it's it seems that it's definitely blown up and everyone's, it's good to see everyone backing Australian businesses. Yeah, so my partner who's um, been off work for uh, a while with our two children um, went back in between uh, for a little bit, but only part-time. She's kind of the one pick, picking, packing, sending people, writing people little notes. And, um, <laughs> no, it, it really is a family business. She, we, we can both bottle oil. Um, and the, pretty much everyone that we buy from, so, like, the bottles come from a place in Australia. Um, the labels get done by Wild Creek Graphics in WA. Um, his, you know, the oil's his... made in, in, Victor- in, in Melbourne, um so look there is a few imported products on the website but pretty much everything is sourced within australia like all our mats are printed in australia um by a company in melbourne um yeah the stubby holders are actually fully made in australia and printed here so yeah um yeah we do as much obviously the oil the bottles the labels all of that if you buy a bottle that's like 100 percent um but yeah obviously like the mat the the nitrile comes from I think probably comes from China and then everything else, the felt and the print is all put on here and finished here as much as we possibly can. That's we, awesome. We'll try and get done here. Yeah. That wild, wild Creek graphics, um, his stuff is amazing. Um, I love watching his stuff pop up and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome stuff. I hit him up. I'm like, Hey, you know, you're constantly backing outdoor, um, businesses and com- the community. I'm like, do you want to come on the podcast? But he said he's a he's a pretty pretty quiet guy and is he, not into public speaking. I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, that's cool. Just keep, keep no, I'd love to hear him on a podcast too. But um, yeah, we use them through the fly fisher as well. My day job, um, they do all of our stickers and stuff as well. So look, they're great. They're just such an easy company to deal with. Their service is five star. Not too pushy. They're not too anything. You tell them what you want. Yeah. Yeah. They do it exactly as you want it, and then they ship it to you super fast, and it's always a, it's always a fair price. No, nah, that's that's awesome. Um, you're gonna laugh at me. The degreaser, the smell, the that orange citrusy smell, I love it. You know how you get the um, the the incense sticks that you put you put like a scented bit in into a bottle, and you put the sticks yep. on top. <laughs> I put some of the degreaser in in one in my podcast hunting room and that's the that's the smell of the the podcast studio is the, is the degreaser <laughs> yeah no that's great and um a lot of people when i produce my oil were like oh, i love the smell of g96 or, or whenever that gun oil is called and i'm like well cool we're never going to produce a smelly gun oil though because that's going to be on your gun while you're hunting yeah and I wanted it to be zero odor for it was purely designed as a for the hunting market. But the degreaser and other stuff, yeah, great. We can have a smell in that, enjoy it. And um, 
yeah, everyone likes that um, that citrus. But it has got an or, um, it's not citrus or citric acid, but it has got an orange oil in there, which helps with the with the cleaning. It's it's also a bio biodegradable cleaner. So if you spill it on the ground, it is gonna you know break down. It's you know it's not gonna be harmful forever. And yeah, the amount that you have to mix with water with the with the degrease is great too. Like it's. It is, mate, either... People are using it to wash their cars down and stuff like that because you I... get so much out of a bottle. I don't know if you saw my story a couple of I days did. ago, but there's a yeah guy who's like a service technician on the road who always has you know, 40, 50, 60 litres of oil in his trays and loads of it spill. And he tried, his company said, mate, you've got to clean your truck up. And he'd used all of their degreases. Nothing had got rid of it. Mixed up some mine, I think three to one, he said. And um, it, it cleaned it. You saw the end yeah. result, you know, it was spotless. No, that was that was incredible, especially just, you know, him reaching out like, hey, do you, do you want to see, see the results? And you're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I must admit, I've, uh, I've got a pressure washer where you can put additives in there. And um, I've done a, do a bit of, obviously, coming from a mechanics background, do a bit of work on my driveway and had, you know, four-wheel drive, um, diff oil and CV grease where, you know, the diff's leaked through into the live axle. It's gone all over the driveway. Clean, you know, put that in the pressure washer, cleaned it all down, got it up. You know, better than brake cleaner did. So, um it's a it's a tough cleaner but without being like harmful to to people that's awesome that's so good um what other products do you have you've got what knife oils yeah so i've got a 100 percent food grade knife oil uh which is another interesting story how that came about so i a couple of guys have asked us about um about that knife or about like a food grade oil. And so I reached out to um, the company that um, did our oil originally and do all of our products. And they were like, oh, look, we'll be in touch. Um, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And then they said, look, there's this company that's a massive butcher company in Melbourne and we're producing an oil for them. Do you want to like tweak it for you and, and do you guys want to kind of hook up and, and see because it's going to be used for like meat processing needs going to be like, like going to grease bearings and fridges and you know keep knives coated with it i'm like yeah cool so all of that r d that went into the firearms oil was kind of cut 50 percent in half because i had another um uh, some uh, you know a, a famous book like a not like a, a well-known you know big big player in the game wanted to join in on the, on that product so um yeah it was wicked we developed that together um he doesn't sell it they just use it in their kind of commercial setting and um yeah so it's been well tested <laughs> before i even really got got started selling a few bottles so yeah 100 percent food grade knife oil uh, which came about maybe a year or two after the original oil. We've got the ball cleaner, which is uh, a concentrate, like a um, uh, so you mix that, dilute that with water, depending on what you want to clean. So if you just want to clean mud and black muck and it's like a surface film off the gun, you can just put couple of drops in a little bit of water and wipe it all down if you've got like a really dirty barrel a gun that's 100 years old and a 22 that's never ever been cleaned you can literally just mix it you can just put put it straight down the barrel it just cleans everything um we've got um jags and um uh, patch holders one of our kind of um another company in 
Australia develops these bore guides and we've got some bore guides tweaked for us. So um, it's kind of like a plastic bore guide that clips into uh, where your bolt would go and it protects yeah. all the rifles so you can just run the the, the um, your rod where, where it needs to go. Uh, we've got some bore snakes, which is a new addition. We've got these really nice... Um, upgraded bottles with a stainless steel tip on them so you can be super accurate of where you want to put your oil we've got cleaning cloths uh lots of mats our mats have been super popular so a match to put down on your bench that's going to protect your bench or going to protect your rifle from your bench if you've got a messy bench um and i think yeah i've got t-shirts stubby holders that kind of stickers and stuff as well but yeah kind of the main meat and potatoes i think i've mentioned yeah that's awesome yeah like i said i got the mat mat here it's good all-purpose mat <laughs> for for everything yeah it is yeah i got a couple on this bench too <laughs> so protect the the wooden bench so what type of gear are you taking out when you're going out hunting uh what like just in general or cleaning rifle wise in general what you you're going out with rifle more these days bow yeah so probably i would say um i'll probably over the last three years i've been 100 percent a rifle hunter um i've been dabbling a bit of hound hunt hound hunting over the last maybe three or four seasons i think i've partaked in 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 every season um maybe not very often um so i've got a tika t3 light with a short barrel 16 inch barrel uh with a red dot on there um perfect love that gun super light take it anywhere you barely know you're carrying it and then it does the job when you need to do the job awesome. i've got a 300 win mag um tika t3 as well the older version the the hound gun i've got so the newer one the x yeah um and i've got uh both running zero tech scopes got a good relationship with zero tech um and that's my stalking rifle I uh, can't remember the zoom of the of the scope. It's not one of their top top end scopes, but it's one of their good ones. That's taken a lot of animal stalking. Um, I probably stalked just as much last year as I did hound hunted, and, and had a lot. And was successful pretty much every time. Um, and then I've got a, a twenty two that's for uh, spotlighting bunnies, and I've got like this crazy top of the line zero tech twenty four zoom scope with a red dot illumination oh, i love it i love it you can snipe bunnies from like you know 75 yards away 100 <laughs> yards it's awesome yeah that's zero tech i need to reach out to ben and get him on the po- it's ben isn't it yeah yeah um, it is yep get him on the podcast Ben Clark. yeah I, I, I definitely love the way that they've gone with everything and yeah just the reviews on on their gear and the way they back you know all the australian hunting hunting stuff is amazing too so um, it is. That will be my. Do you want me to talk? Just, do you want me to kind of talk about what I have in my backpack for the two types of hunting I do? Yeah, definitely. Run in, run, run over that stuff. Um, I'm sure people would be um, definitely keen to hear what goes into a hound hunt as well. Yeah, so I'll start with hound hunting. So I got a custom made backpack made by um, Wilderness Threadworks out of uh, Tasmania. So it's an orange, just a dump pack, basically. It's a complete orange dump pack with like a Cordura camo top, just a drawstring top. So it's just basically a, a cylindrical tube um, with a like a small pouch that swings in and out at, in the top. 
So in the top there, I keep a little bottle of oil, uh, one of Rob Herbert's helium knives, and a boar snake. I always carry a boar snake in all my packs, um, just in case I fall over, the rifle uh, barrel goes in the mud, or a stick falls in there, whatever. I know I can always clear any obstructions out in the field. Pretty much the rest of the stuff in my pack when I'm hound hunting is like muesli bars, bottle of water, and a rain jacket. And that's pretty much all I can take in. I like to go light. Probably pack more on, on the food. For a while there, when I was hound hunting flat out, I um, was carrying a Yeti and I'd boil up some water and I'd put like soup in the Yeti in the morning. And all the boys used to like laugh at me, going, Oh, you having morning tea in your soup yet? Like over the radio and stuff. But yeah, in the middle of winter and it's freezing cold and you've walked for a river and you're wet up to your knees and you've got a warm soup at like lunchtime or something, it's just, it was awesome. Um, yeah, obviously, I take a lot more gear um, when I stalk. So I've got my bino harness on the front. Um, with a, I've got some Vortex binos. I might look to upgrade those to some Zero-Tech um, ones. Uh, in my bino harness, I carry, like, optics cleaners. Uh, the, uh, I dabble a little bit with a Samba cooler. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. Um, some spare ammo always goes in there. And then in the backpack, you've usually got, like, a GPS, a radio, which I do take hounds hunting too but it's not normally on my like holster on my chest um some spare normally take some spare clothes whether it be uh, a jumper and a rain jacket um plenty of food i normally take a jet boil with me um a little bit more water and something like a freeze-dry meal or something because in the uk my uncle always said as soon as you shoot an animal you wait 20 minutes minimum so, and um, I've done a bit of bow hunting with Captain Bowman, Carl Brown as well, and he was the same, like, we sh you'd shoot something and you'd boil the billy. Yeah. Uh, right where you are. So you'd, you'd shoot it, you think the shot was good, you're going to go and have a look for the, the animal, um, you'd boil the billy, you'd eat your food. By the time you've done that, you've packed everything away, you've waited your 20 minutes. The theory behind that is if you've shot an animal and it's hit and it's scared and it jumps, it might only go 20 metres lie down and go whoa what was that is anything coming after me no nothing's coming after me i'm just going to chill here or actually i'm a little bit hurt and they expire where they are where if you'd run straight in you're going to bounce you're going to you jump them up off their bed you're going to they're going to have a lot of adrenaline pumping through their body um and they're just going to keep going and going and going because uh, they know that something's after them and you know they might just you, it's going to be harder to find them basically I don't know if you've spoken about that on the podcast before, but that's no. just something my uncle always reiterated to me. That's a good theory. Um, you know, I've heard the whole, you know, sit down, light a smoke for those that smoke. Um, that's a that's another thing that, you know, people used to do. Um, it's, yeah, definitely definitely some great advice. It's not something I, I generally do, but that's just, <laughs> you know, the, the areas that I'm hunting, I can kind of see where, where everything goes down and, majority of the time it is in um it is it is in view so but you know it's definitely something i'll probably start taking on board i've always got a jet boil you know some some tea bag coffee and some two minute noodles yeah. um you know I've, i always get shit that i carry way too much in my bag and on this new zealand trip i definitely definitely felt it i need <laughs> to look at how no, to I, pack a bit lighter I think <laughs> 
stalking wise where you can kind of pick and choose the pace of the day you can stop for morning tea you can stop for lunch i always do like to carry a few more luxuries for sure but when you're hound hunting and you don't necessarily get to pick when you stop you don't get to pick you know when you want to eat it's go 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 if you get a call on the radio and you've got to you know get to a different spot or, or grab dogs um and and walk them in a different spot then you know it, i carry a lot less gear I, I like to be lighter you're walking through the bush a lot faster too and obviously if i take a shot at a deer i'm not waiting 20 minutes you know you can know pretty quickly with if the dogs catch up to it that you know you've put a good hit on it so um and you know maybe the next blow if it does run too far and you don't drop it on the spot it will probably die in between you and the next bloke or something like that so um yeah but yeah definitely take a fair bit more gear when I'm stalking rather than on, on the hounds. So with the hound stuff, a couple questions about that. Cause you know, it's not really a thing over here in South Australia and, um, yeah, it's pretty much only exclusive to Victoria. That's that style. <laughs> how many, it is. how many people, how many dogs are typically in a, I know, I know it can change, but yeah, it changes week on, week out. I think we always try to find 10 blokes. Like, I think that's as many as you're allowed, maybe, and we always try to. There's a lot of weeks that you're short on blokes, for sure. Um, dogs, uh, I think you can run eight on a deer, and three of those are puppies or something. So we always split the pack up. So we might hunt. If we've got 10 blokes and 20 dogs, then we might split uh, five blokes off that way, five blocks off that way, and and you know eight dogs there, eight dogs there. Have a couple in the kennel, maybe they'll run them later. So um, yeah, it depends. Uh, some dogs get you know they get sore pads or they you know weren't willing or whatever, so they have weeks off or they get injured or something like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it it, the, it is an ever changing feat. It's week on week out. It's never the same. And what type of roles? So you got the. You know, it might be two different groups or one group. What type of role does everyone play? Does everyone have a yeah, different... Yeah, so you have walkers um, and then you have, like, guys that cut deer off. Um, so you might get... So you got, you have the one or two blokes that walk the dogs in in the morning. Then you have guys that walk in off a ridge line down to a river where you know that there's good crossing points where the deer might be. And then you have guys on the outside of them that are going to try and cut the deer off if it gets past the guys that are in the bush. Yep. Um, so the younger, fitter guys are usually the guys that either walk the dogs in or, or walkers to certain spots. Um, and then some of the more experienced guys, um, the more senior, more experienced guys, they'll be the guys that are like backstop. Yeah, interesting. It's definitely uh, completely different. But look, um, I've probably... I don't know how many times I would have gone out with the hounds, but I'm only probably four seasons in and I haven't hunted consistently for those four seasons. So I'm still very new to the Australian um, side of that type of hunting. Yeah. I've got a mate over here that does the, the um, hound hunting for foxes on horseback. Um, Yeah. He's also the coincidentally the same guy that does the fly fishing that that i'm mates with as well you know he gets the full the full fox hunting get up on and the horn and everything so that that's pretty cool to watch that style of stuff but yeah definitely with deer it's um you know it's always you know some people have mixed reviews about it but i i, I think it's bloody awesome um it looks yeah it look, looks pretty it's cool. definitely not for everyone um 
I love it. I personally love it. Being from England, obviously that type of hunting's been banned. Well, the dogs can't rip the fox apart. Um, you need someone in there with a gun, so they probably do it slightly more like we do it here in Australia, yeah. where the dogs don't actually bite the deer. They more have them as uh, flushing them or, or scent trailing them. Um, you know, I've always loved dogs. I've always loved hunting with dogs, whether that be um, but, uh, like duck shooting where we've had retrieving dogs or pigeon shooting where they've been retrieving dogs or, or hounds, scent trailing hounds. It feels really primal to me. Um, I totally get it's polarising for a lot of people. Uh, it's probably uh, sacrificed me getting jobs in the past when people find out that you're a hound hunter. Look, um, I, I don't necessarily go out and tell everyone that I do it. Um, I'm not going to come out and say, oh, I'm super proud that I'm this, you know, hound hunter. It's definitely part of me. It's definitely something I love. But um, obviously you need to, uh, you know, uh, be in the right crowd to, to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what type of dogs are they running? Is it? Beagles, Beagles, Harriers, yeah. and Bloodhounds, and we've got all three. Yeah, awesome, awesome. And do you, I know a lot do you of guys have your own dogs? Or... The... What's that? Do you no, your... I've just got a Labrador, just yep. a Labrador. And so they this they have the specific species from my understanding that you're only allowed to use. They have to. Is it all purebreds and stuff like that? Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, and so it was foxhounds that most people used. They banned foxhounds. Um, and then I know a lot of crews that just use beagles, um, but yeah, we use a mixture of all of them. So there's a bit of bit of all of them. They have to be registered with the game management authority. You have to go to like a day and get them all registered, yep. and they check their you know heights and breeds and all of that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, it's it, yeah, it's that's you stick to the rules, I guess. Yeah, that's it's it's is there reasons that they have to be certain heights and. Is that just with the breed, um, the breed type of stuff, or to make sure they're purebreds? Or this is uh, look, I don't know uh, the rough ins and outs of the rules. The the beagles, the smaller dogs we've got, they're the slowest, but they can go all day long. The bigger dogs we've got, the bloodhounds, they're a lot quicker, so they can catch up with the deer a lot faster. But they can't, they don't seem to be able to go run as many k's as a beagle does. So I. And when we have our beagles on deer, the, the deer can be half an hour in front of the beagles. Um, so maybe that is, that's why they've picked those particular breeds. That might not be true at all. That's just something that I've noticed from um, the hunting that I've done that our bigger dogs, you know, they can't go as fast all day. The beagles are a lot slower, but they just seem to, they're just marathon runners, you know. The, the bloodhounds might be a sprinter and your beagles, your, your marathon runner, if that, if that makes sense. No, that's, that's, that's awesome. Um, I'm definitely going to have to chase the avenue and get some more hound hunters on. Um, you know, I met a, a few of the guys that went over to Snake Island with me. They're, they're all big, big hound hunters. So it's, it's something I'm going to have to chase up for the podcast and learn more about and try and get some more. Yeah, aware, look, definitely talk to out. someone that's, you know, a bit more experienced than me that can answer some of your questions for sure. Oh, you, you, you've um, been very informative for me because I've known. I've only seen what I've seen on Instagram, you know. I, I haven't met too many people that have done it, apart from those guys on Snake Island, but, yeah. Um, what would be your top beginner tip for someone getting into hunting? Um, I think 
to me, I'd find someone. My biggest tip, oh, what's helped me the most, is find someone in your area that's got a bit of experience and become like a sponge and learn as much as you can from them. And for me, that was a guy called Roscoe that I met off Instagram. He was fletching his own arrows. I sent him a message saying, oh, look, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm not finding what I want from my local archery store. When it comes to hunting, I want to shoot, you know, like traditional off the rest. I need feather fletchings. Um, maybe I didn't even know that back then, but um, I was trying to shoot, you know, traditional off the rest and, um, or, you know, straight, uh, straight off the bow and messaged him and he answered all the questions I had. And we're really good mates today. You know, I was on the phone to him today having a chat. We still hunt regularly. And this is probably an eight, eight year, eight years, nine years from when I sent him the message. So That's awesome. that would be my biggest, yeah, that'd be my biggest tip from someone rather than just a piece of gear or something like that. I think find someone that's got some experience that's actually willing to kind of uh, teach you. He eventually took me out um, just before I got my firearms license. He also helped me acquire my firearms license. He took me out on some private property with one of his guns and I ended up shooting my first Samba with him. So I think super rewarding for him as it was for me. Um, um, but, yeah, that would be my biggest tip, I guess. Find someone that knows a bit more than you and, and learn as much from them as possible. I mean, I, I truly believe there's things that people teach you that you would never learn yourself. A hundred percent. You could hunt. You could hunt for 50, 60 years by yourself and be very successful, but there's things that you would never teach yourself where, you know, these guys – yeah, they, they tell you something and you go, oh, wow, why didn't I think of that, you know? And if you go into every hunt with that open mind as well, um, when you're hunting with different people, you're going to pick up bits and pieces or how everyone does it and you take, pick and choose what suits you best and you learn learn so much, even from, you know, whether it's guys that are older than you or guys, guys that are younger yeah. than you. Um, I, I learn a fair bit from the young bloke that I hunted with in New Zealand, Jürgen, um, you know, he's 21, but he's got amazing experience hunting tar and chamois and all of that through the, the mountains of New Zealand there. And just being able to learn off of him, it was just incredible. Yeah, for sure. And everyone's got different experiences with their hunting. You don't know who that, you know, your friend, he was 21, but you don't know who his mentor was and who he's learned from, you know? Yeah. So there could be years of knowledge in, in him already from what he's picked up from someone else. And the same with me, with my uncle, you know, my uncle was probably 40 plus years old with 30, 40, well, sorry, with probably 20 to 30 years of experience before he took me under his wing. No, that's, that's awesome. Um, what would be your top five items for a beginner getting into hunting? For me, it's you need to have um, stuff to look after your gear. So number one would be, you know, whether it be cleaning products, one-piece rod, ball, snake, whatever, you need to be able to clear a firearm out in the bush, um, get yourself a ball snake and, and some sort of cleaning kits to look after your investment. Second would be a really good pair of binos. I, if I ever forget a pair of binos, it's almost like I don't want to hunt. Like especially stalking, it's like... I, you know, I might as well just go home. You just feel so behind the eight ball, so in, so hindered if you don't have a really good pair of binos. Definitely. Um, a good, a good pack. 
some sort of good backpack. Even if it's small, it's got to be strong enough to be able to cut out kilos and kilos of meat. I prefer smaller, lighter packs, but I buy really good quality ones and get them custom made so that they can hold. So is um, your, your normal weight. stalking pack, is that a custom made one too? What what are you running? I've got a Kefaru stalking pack. Okay, awesome. Uh, I was going to get rid of it actually and do something else, but the dog chewed it up. So I've had it kind of I've repaired it up a little bit and it's, yeah, it's, it does the job. Um, so yeah, obviously bulletproof. How many packs. liters is that? What are you running for a stalking pack? I don't know, but I've got a few, I've got like the guide lid that goes on it that adds a few other liters. I've got the Sherman pouch that adds a few liters also folds down, becomes a rifle holder. Um, I've got like all the adapters and, and buckles and stuff to go with it as well. So it's not definitely not one of their real big packs. It's one of their more day packs, but then I can kind of extend it with the, uh, bits and pieces that I've, I've got, um, before I got my, uh, wilderness Threadworks pack, I had a um, Stony Creek like day hunter pack, yep. uh, and that that's like a it's like a microfiber felt material, so yeah. it's super silent. That was a good pack too. Yeah, the uh, Kiwis they love their their microfiber packs. You know, Huntec made a few, and um, a few of the other other companies they they all have their microfiber packs, and yeah, they they they're not too bad. For me, they're just no. not enough back support. I like having that bit of back support in a pack, especially if you're putting no, some Ks in. And <laughs> no, I definitely agree. I think, um, yeah, that Stony Creek one's probably on its last legs. The inside membrane that holds the microfiber together is, you know, off color and kind of looking a bit see-through now. Uh, and I know you can't get those packs anymore, so that's that's a bit disappointing. But yeah, <laughs> and uh, but I've got some other stuff that I can make do with. So I think packs were number three. Give us two more. Yeah. Um, I think knives and knife sharpener. Uh, so I've all my knives pretty much are R&M blades. They're all from Rob Herbert. Yep. Um, I've got a Benchmade, uh, like something mountain skinner um, as well. And then from Rob Herbert, I bought all pretty much all the workshop sharpening gear um yeah you need a sharp knife and uh, you know you can knife can be the best knife in the world for me personally i kind of hack a little bit and um uh, and i do need to touch my knife up while you know uh, field dressing a deer so um a good one of those little uh, field sharpeners from workshop uh, would be another um good tip for me and then probably the last one um, whether that be like, I, I love Garmin gear. Uh, I've got a Garmin Phoenix. Yep. Um, I always on the watch. I always, even if I'm not tracking where I go, I always plumb the car or the camp in. So worst case comes to worst case. I can go on the watch, go back to camp. It tells me the direction I've been bushed so many times. Um, I've got a alpha 200 I, which is a dog tracking Garmin that does have the in reach technology as well. So it's like an EPER built in. Um, and I have that normally running 24-7, so I can actually follow my tracks back out if I need to, or if I drop a piece of gear, I can follow the blue line straight back to where I was. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, that that for me is where I've spent my money, and I'll put, that's, you know, and I have put my money where my mouth is, and that's what, what, what I like to, um, you know, have as my top five. Yeah, those are Zoe zippers that... Um rob rob's been punching out they look they look incredible they're definitely on 
a list I'll probably invest into one of these days. Um, they're a really, really nice looking blade. And the workshop, yeah. workshop sharpener is something on my list as well. Eventually, you know how it is with hunting gear, though. <laughs> yeah. So I think I got. He had like a like a bench one that was like it rocks, it moves. Yeah. Um, I picked that one up from him first, and it took a little bit of getting used to. But um, I can get a fairly good um, sharp knife with that. Then I bought like the little field sharpener that's got like the leather strap and the two and and even the hook sharpener and stuff on it. So that goes with me on every hunt. And then I bought the one that you you like you bolt the knife down into you like you like a vice yeah and then it's got like this pivot arm and you uh, and you do that too and you can set the the angle you can wind up and down and it sets the angle so yeah That's i've got all I've three of those at. and i've used them all and yeah they they work really well they look really good and yeah the garmin stuff as well like you said is incredible i got the garmin in reach um use that snake island and new zealand and just being able to touch in with home um, no matter where you are, was was really handy with the in-reach um, technology. Yeah. Well, I got stuck in the Malakuta bushfires, um, and, uh, you know, I don't know, we lost phone signal, there was no uh, power, uh, you know, you name it, we were thrown, it was thrown at us. And to be able to talk to my parents back in England and people back in Melbourne and get, like, updates of what was going on with the fire and where we can and yeah. can't go and... Uh, was was fantastic. So, look, not saying that it saved my life in that situation. I think that the the guys on the ground, the CFA, the police, those guys saved our lives. But um, yeah, that was definitely something that kind of helped us get home a bit earlier than we we may have able, you know, we could have yeah, otherwise. It's definitely worth um worth the money money there and just how easy it connects up with your phone to be able to do do everything and then you know turn you your use, phone into a sat phone yeah use the app between the watch and the and the gps device itself and yeah just it make, makes everything so much easier when you're out there yeah well i had the Sunto traverse alpha stealth before then which has got all the GPS and that on it, but it doesn't connect to your phone. And then when I got into hound hunting and I got the drive track for the car, then the alpha, then the watch connects to both. Yeah. And it was, you know, when you've got that drive track connect to the alpha, it has your car on the map all the time. So if you hop in your car, drive around the corner to hop out of the car to you know, grab a dog or whatever, you look at your GPS and if you, if you didn't plumb the car in, you can see where the car was. Oh, that's awesome. Just, yeah, so all of that dog tracking stuff works really well through Garmin and that's why I've just gone 100% Garmin. Yeah, Gar yeah it's, it's an incredible gear. I, I really um, liked having all of that gear on there, you know. Um, mixed between, especially on Snake Island, the Garmin stuff mixed between, um, it doesn't connect, but Onyx Hunt. So I did did a trail on Onyx. I did the trail on the Garmin's, yeah. and yeah, it just helped mark everything out so so much better for for my period. And then because I did that on the Sunday, I went through and marked all the spots. You know, I gave I screenshotted everything and gave it to the other guys in camp so that they knew exactly where to go and they didn't get mixed up on the trails. So it, no, that's fantastic. It's, it's definitely technology's come come a long way and I can't read a map. I'm dyslexic as all hell. So <laughs> oh, me too, mate. Me too. 
I um the Sunto I had though, very impressed. That thing would survive a nuclear bomb, you know, being made in Finland. If you want something that you know is not going to ever let you down, where I had some of like the lower tier before I bought the Phoenix, some yeah. of the other garments that didn't have sapphire crystal and weren't made of metal, I broke a few of them and I drowned a couple of them. <laughs> like maybe they weren't as waterproof as they said they were. But the Phoenix I've got now is a Phoenix 5. Mate, that has taken swims of me. That's been around the world on flights, bashed through the bush. Um, yeah, and yeah, uh, you know, that's proven itself. Yeah, mine mine has too. It's a it's a bit, you know, discolored these days from, you know, because it's my everyday wear as well. So it just gets battered and beaded and it's tough as bloody nails. <laughs> no, they've, done, they've, they've nailed it on the head, I reckon, with that Phoenix line, especially for hunters. 100%. So a bit of a silly one, zombie apocalypse weapon. What are you going Mate, I love that little hound gun I was talking about. Yep. Um, stain, stainless steel, short barrel, red dots uh, sight on it. I'm very familiar with it. I know how to use it. I know the ins and outs of it. I've customized it a little bit. It's got a fluted bolt, uh, titanium parts, trigger guard. Yeah, it's. I can shoot rattle rounds off. I, being a bolt, I can still rattle rounds off with that pretty quick. And I know it. it's here. That's what I'm going to grab. <laughs> and what caliber was you that know? one again? Sorry? It's that's in a 308. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> so easy to come by ammunition and yeah, it's a bit of a silly one, but I, I I'm obsessed with zombies and zombie movies and shows. <laughs> yeah, I, I am too. Actually, I, I love like post-apocalyptic kind of world movies and yeah, no, it's it's cool. So, what have you forgotten on a hunting trip? Oh, boots. <laughs> Always forget my boots. <laughs> I've yeah, been like there. I have a pair of work boots or my Crocs or something, not ashamed <laughs> to say, in the car. And then I remember on a backpacking trip, we got like literally halfway up the bush. We were probably three hours from home and we just stopped the car and I go, fuck, I forgot my boots. It was like a four-day backpacking trip. <laughs> um and my my mate was trying to think of every scenario, and I'm like, mate, it's four days. I really want my boots. <laughs> um, so we ended up. He ended up turning around, going back to pick my boots up. But I owe him oh, massively. Wow. I'll never forget it. <laughs> I'm sure he'll never let you live it down either. No, he's been really good about it, actually. Um, yeah. Look, I think yeah. Look, he's uh, he's had to do that a few times. Not necessarily for me, but um, for, <laughs> for other people. So, so yeah, he, it wasn't the biggest shock in the world that someone's forgot something. Put yeah. it that way. I've uh, I've talked about it before on the podcast, but I left a, my pair of hunting boots in the driveway. So we're packing the car at like four a.m. Chucked everything in, and there was yeah three three or four cars and. You know, we got halfway to the Flinders Ranges, which is about a seven, eight hour trip. And yeah, got got halfway. I'm like, my mum sent me a message. She's like, did you mean to leave these boots in the driveway? I'm like, shit. Yeah. <laughs> so well, I ended one up of those getting... things, like normally I wear my boots on the way up there and I'll have camp shoes in the car. But it's like ammo, you know, in the back, you know, in your front of your mind, you, that's got to come. The gun's got to come. The bolt's got to come. Clothes, you're normally wearing clothes. And boots are those, especially if you're wearing camp shoes, you know, they're, they're such an, they can be such an afterthought. 
yeah, well, it was, yeah, I, I had to do, yeah, we were there for like four or five days and I was hunting in steel caps, bought a $50 pair of steel caps on the way up there and the Flinders Ranges is like a deserty mountain terrain and just rocky and shrubby and, yeah, but surprisingly didn't get any blisters, even though they were brand new boots and steel caps, so I, I did pretty well, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. So what's the most important item you take out hunting with you? Uh, that's a difficult one. You could say that a lot of different things are important for a reason. I mean, I guess your rifle, like that's the reason you're there. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I'll try and think of something different. Um, I mean this, you know, we can keep it a bit more, um, high caliber centric and, and I could say something like a boar snake. I mean, you fall over and you jam that barrel full of full of mud, you're never going to get all that out, even if you get a stick or something to poke it down there. But you know with a boar snake that you can push that bit of, uh, even if you have to get a stick to push that bit of brass all the way through so it pokes out the end, you know you can clear it 100% full of obstructions. And that is, I think I've said it already on this podcast, but that is something I do take with me on every single hunt. So it's not something I own yet, but it's... After you talking about it and me remembering back to a couple of incidences out hunting, I reckon that's something I'm going to have to get for my my kit. Um, you know, I was out hunting on Kangaroo Island with one of my good mates, Aaron, you know, did the whole tape over the end of the barrel. Um, it was pretty muddy and wet and I've put the electrical tape over the end and I've handed it to him and he goes, nah, it's all good. I don't need it. Um, and then as soon as I put the tape down, he's dropped his rifle barrel first straight into the mud and it's just stuck it, stuck into the mud like if you <laughs> if you dropped a stick or an arrow and it just stuck straight into the mud bore first. And, um, yeah, I think we spent about half an hour cleaning it out with reeds. So we got, yeah. got, so got a bunch of... if you had a boar snake at the time, <laughs> it would have been a two-second job. Yeah, 100%. Um, and then, yeah, that's that's happened to a couple of different friends out when we've been out. I've handed them the electrical tape on a muddy day and they've turned around, no, nah, no, nah, I don't need that. What are you using that for? <laughs> and then... So I will always take my barrel, regardless of what I'm doing, I'll always put a single piece of tape over the top and then I'll probably three or four pieces around the barrel itself just to secure that single piece in. Um, but yeah, I'll do that everywhere. But I've been on hunts with two people that have both shot a foul barrel and the barrels exploded. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And when I did my firearms course, uh, this, the copper get this, had this bag and he goes, this is what I call my bag of stupid. (laughs) And there's like four rifles in there with barrels exploded. And he's like, you know, this is, this is just stupid. Like there's so many easy ways to stop this from happening. This should just never happen. Yeah, it's it's something I do when it's wet and miserable and I know it's quite muddy out. Um, that's yeah, the first thing I do exactly the same one one piece of tape over the end and then a couple around the barrel just to hold it in there nice and tight. And everyone's like, like if I post a photo up and there's still tape after I've shot on the barrel, what's that red stuff on the end of your barrel? What's that black tape? Why do you have tape there? Yeah, can you shoot through? Yeah, the it's tape? funny. Yeah, it's such a um, you know such a kind of well-known thing to do to stop uh, stuff getting down your barrel. But, you know, I never sling my rifle when I'm hunting. So if I'm hunting, I will always hold it and the sling's in my pack. 
if I've finished hunting, I'll put the sling on my rifle, sling the rifle over my shoulder, and if I'm walking through tea tree or stuff like that and I'll get back to the car, I'll uncock the rifle. There'll be little bits of tea tree and little bits of stick that has fallen down the barrel. And if I shot that, that's running the risk then of, of a barrel exploding. Yeah, 100%. It's uh, definitely a good um, good way of, way of doing it. And, yeah, you definitely don't want a barrel exploding. I couldn't think of anything worse and you'd be quite jumpy on the on the trigger after that once you get a new rifle anyway <laughs> yeah yeah what's well this this leads straight in what's the sketchiest most dangerous thing that's happened to you yeah yeah I, I was on the send it mate boys podcast and they asked me this stuff too and i can't really remember i mean there's there's been so many different things i mean back when i lived in the uk um when we were young we took a friend of ours's mum's car on a bit of a joyride um, <laughs> and ended up crashing it at slow speeds. But we crashed it into bollards. So it wasn't like a fence with fence posts, but it just was the vertical uprights. Yeah. So no horizontals. And as we crashed the car, we kind of went up over the top and landed on them. <laughs> and we could not get the car off. So we actually had to tell you know, yeah, we've taken your Mercedes Benz and we've turned around the corner a little bit too fast and we've gone over these bollards and your car's stuck there. Um, <laughs> and it was a huge repair job because the car had actually bounced up and it had landed where the oil filter was oh, no. and it had smashed the oil filter and the oil filter housing into the block of the engine. <laughs> so, like, the one weakness of an engine, it, it, that's where it penetrated. So it was like six, seven months before they got the car back. It was, um, but I was actually in the boot with no seatbelt on. So I'm really incriminating myself here, but it was a very, very long time ago, the other side of the world. Um, but yeah, you know, it, there's lots of things that, um, you know, lots of risks and stuff I've, I've taken. I mean, I've travelled quite a lot and you can get yourself into hairy situations overseas. Uh, you can be very naive and think everything's, you know, like a first world country like England or how safe Australia yeah. is and you can get yourself into trouble overseas for sure. Okay. And then all of a sudden you come to a realisation that you're with these people in a foreign country and you probably don't want to be here. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Cody Gear on. He found himself in in that situation on the on the way to one of his hunting trips. He stopped in Saudi Arabia and got kidnapped by a taxi driver. <laughs> so he, yeah, that's unreal. He knows full well by um <laughs> how easy it is to get in a sketchy situation like that. Um, what about the funniest thing that's happened to you while you've been out hunting or fishing? Um. Oh, this, I mean, I've done a lot of, um, so last year I went on a trip with my boss to Albany Island, which is an island in between Australia and Papua New Guinea off the top of uh, Cape York. So off the tip of Cape York and we, our guide got COVID and we rented, we had a rental boat. Uh, so it's an island with just a fishing lodge and it's guided only you get you know it's there's a that's all that there is there's like three or four guides there's nine kind of clients all your food meals drinks everything's secluded for you and they take you fishing from sunrise to sunset every day anyway our guide wasn't there and they gave us a boat uh to take out and um we we ran aground and the tides up there are different you know (laughs) 
and we could not get this boat uh, off. And it, we just basically sat there for hours and hours and we go, stuff it. We'll just go wading. So we're talking about, you know, queens, you know, we're talking yeah. about crocodiles, <laughs> sharks, blah, blah, blah. And as soon as my boss hopped out the boat, he got about four steps away and he was on this ledge that we'd run aground on. And on one side of the ledge was just a sheer drop off into blue water. You couldn't see the bottom. And this shark came out of nowhere and went, it was probably a six foot shark and, you know, went right up to him, almost knocked him off his feet and turned around and went back. And I'm like, I'm not getting out of the boat. I'm staying in the boat till the water comes up. So that was kind of funny, but scary at the same time. That would be, that would be, that would, yeah. <laughs> so what about top five dream animals, fish, hunting, fishing destinations? What? Yeah. I think over the last kind of year, I've done trips beyond my wildest dreams. I could have never imagined, especially working at the fly fisher, the places I would have gone and, and fished. So I don't think I know what my dream uh, trip would be. Um, you know, a home, um, you know, the trout fishing, the hunting in England, if you've got money and, and time, is some of the best in the world. It's, it's very not advertised and it's very kind of you know it's not thought of in that way but if i had the opportunity to go back um to england and, and hunt uh, you know anything any any deer um uh, over there with my uncle that's kind of a bit of a dream trip which i'll probably i'll, I'll probably struggle to do that um yeah. to be honest um you know and, and to get back there to have time away from the family while i'm there and, and, and go for a hunt would be tricky what uh, species did you actually take yourself while you were over there? Um, so my uncle shot a fallow in the red, but I got a monk jack and a Chinese water deer. That's awesome. They're but m mostly um, like rabbits. So I used to hunt on a property that I had access to where I could go there without my uncle. I had a couple of properties. I had a, a small holding hay farm and I had a chicken property. And we'd shoot foxes and rabbits and stuff on the chicken farm. Um so, yeah, most, but, yeah, the deer hunting was as much as I could do, um, but, yeah, mostly the small game. Yeah, munjack, Chinese water, deer, roe deer, they're all very, very high on my lists. I like, especially after taking the hog deer, they're, I, I like these small deer species. They're, they're pretty Yeah, cool. they're wicked. And then, you know, pretty unique too. The Chinese water deer, especially the monk jack, you know, that have tusks and antlers. Yeah. They're pretty impressive animals. And they have the glands on the front of their face, their scent glands, the huge... Yeah. I mean, I think they look a little bit like a samba to me, but, like, obviously a samba is a hundred times bigger. Yeah. What about eating-wise? How, how do they rate compared to, say, samba? You know what? I can't really remember. I mean, they're great tasting. Um, you know, uh, Samba is probably one of my favorite. I just remember Fallow always tasting a little bit different to everything else and probably not my favorite. Um, but yeah, Monk Jack, we loved it. And that was kind of a prized eating for us. Uh, and then Samba, oh yeah, like nothing really beats Samba. I don't think like, especially in Australia, that's some of the best deer. Yeah, it's definitely beautiful meat. I like the strong gamey flavor of reds and fallow. Um, talking to Ben Solaris, that comes down to he reckons is the German heritage in those in those countries over there, like Germany. They they prefer the the stronger tasting venison, you know. But samba's very quite tame, and then even um, hog deer is even tamer than that, like almost very bland 
for for what yeah. it is. So it is. I would say Samba and my partner, if we have it really, really fresh, like I don't hang it. She says, you know, she said she thinks it's very kind of bland, almost watered down. You know. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. Compared compared to Reds and Fallow, um, yeah, it's almost got got. Well, Hog Deer almost has no taste at all. Like it's yeah. That that blew me away about Hog Deer. And as soon as well, I, I've I've never had Hog Deer, so I couldn't comment. You'll have to get over there and get some. They're not they're not too far. Um, the, it seems like the public land guys are doing pretty well um, this Hog Deer season so far. I've seen some some nice deer coming off of public land. Oh, mate, it would only be an hour or two's drive from where I am, to be honest. Get on it. Get on it. <laughs> There's such a cool little critter. Maybe yeah. That, maybe that can be one of your top dream. <laughs> dream yeah, for sure. Mate, I, I'm, you know, I would go anywhere, hunt anything. I don't, I'm not one of these guys. It's like, oh, I'm not interested in that, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Um, you know, when I first came to Australia, it was like, I don't, I want to do things here that I can't do in the UK. So for me, like Samba was right up there. Catching Murray Cod was up there. You know, all of these things that you can't do in the UK. Um, so that's why kind of, for me, Fallow and Red kind of maybe dropped down that list a little bit. If someone phoned me up and said, hey, you know, we've got five days on a private red deer or fallow property, would I say no? Hell no. Of course I wouldn't. <laughs> um, but, you know, it just was never the the top of the priorities list, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely the same, like as in, um, you know, not, not going to say no to a new opportunity of hunting something different or going fishing for something yeah. different. Like if you flew all the way to the UK and you had the choice between hunting roe and monkjack or or fallow, what would you choose? Oh, uh, I, I, I don't know. Of course, it's going to be the monkjack and the roe deer, and, <laughs> and that's it. You know, it, it, it's that's definitely on the cards. That's the only thing that I'm remotely interested in going to the UK for. Nothing else. I don't care about the castles, the countryside. It's just the the deer species that's the and the hunting well you know you're probably hunting very close to castles or ruins or something you know yeah it doesn't interest me <laughs> it's like europe, <laughs> europe's never been on my radar for traveling but now that there's more people going over to the different european countries and and hunting it's like oh well maybe i'll maybe i should have gone to europe like the touristy stuff never never attracted me but you know all these different species that people are going over to Europe and chasing like roe deer, munjack, um, mouflon, all of those different species. It's like, oh, that's actually put put it on my radar now. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So, going back to the food aspect, what's your favourite thing to to cook? Wild game. I've got wise? a tray. Yeah, got a Traeger smoker. So, like anything I can put in there, I love it. Any go to recipes? Any go to um, pellets that you're using? What flavours? Uh, I've got a guy around the corner from here that's got a barbecue shop that sells those, I think they're the lumberjack ones, like they're the premium ones that come out the US. Um, and I, I, I've just bought blends from him. So I've had like his competition blend, his supreme blend and, and other bits and pieces, which are, you know, like a blend of three or four different woods. Um, I obviously a smoked backstrap. Uh, is good. I, I really like that. Um, I like venison burgers in there. Yeah. So um, mince up the venison with bacon, um, like 20% bacon, 
uh, 80% uh, venison and then cheese on the top, plastic American cheese. Look, it's junk, but sometimes it just tastes so good. Put them in there for on a higher heat for a little bit longer. Um, yeah, awesome. I love I love that too. That that definitely sounds good, and that's something I haven't tried, especially mixing the bacon into the into the venison mints. Um, I'm gonna have to try. Yeah, that I I kind of found that by mistake. So I went to the butcher to go and buy pork fat to make sausages or to make mints and stuff for tacos and bolognese and whatever else you use mints for. And uh, no, sorry, can't get any. Won't have any for three days. I'm like, mate, um, the meats defrosted i've got you know or whatever i'm about to freeze this meat i've got 40 kilos of it whatever it may be so i ended up going and buying loads of budget bacon just so i could have it i didn't want to mince it i wanted it ready in the freezer to pull out in small individual packets so i could chuck it in you know uh you know recipes that i needed it for um so yeah ended up buying the budget bacon blintzing that all up with it and yeah it was beautiful so do you add much pork when you're mincing? Because when I when I mince um, venison, I don't add any any pork, and I use it yeah bolognese, tacos, all of all of the above, and I, I never never really thought to add any pork. I yeah always do always have back in the UK we always did um, you know obviously venison's very lean, uh, and when you do get fat on it, it's really waxy. Um, especially those European deer species, uh, especially over winter, they get very waxy fat yeah. on them. You know, it's almost like you could make a candle out of it. It's super rock yeah, hard. So we always used to mix it with pork fat, and I've all, just always done it that way. Um, you don't have to do it, but I do think it gives it like that silky, kind of more oily film to the meat, makes it cook a little bit nicer maybe. Um, pro- and probably definitely makes it taste a bit nicer, but I haven't had it without that, put it that way. Yeah, interesting. Going to have to try that next time I'm in some. Um, but in, within saying that, I don't use cooking oils. I pretty much only use lard or butter these days, so I'm probably getting a yeah. very similar effect cooking it in lard anyway. Yeah, 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 I'd say so. So what about a best hunting story? Is there something that's right at the peak? Um, there's a few kind of hound stories, you know, where you work really hard. And I think that they're, they wouldn't make necessarily particularly good stories for your listeners, but they're really personal to me because I went for a personal kind of suffering to, to get those animals, but they weren't my biggest heads or, yeah. or anything like that. Um, but, yeah, there was a time that uh, we hunted off this helipad, hound hunted, and it was quite a long walk down. Look, for a lot of your listeners, maybe, you know, it was probably a few K straight down. Um, didn't got to the bottom quite quickly, but as soon as I got to where I wanted to be, a deer ran past. I only got a glimpse of it, huge stag, hadn't been hound hunting too long, and I shot this thing and it went down. I called on the radio, I've shot this massive stag. Anyway... The boys all went ballistic. Yeah, oh, yeah, well done. Great. You know, how big is it? Are we talking like 30 inches, like 28 inches? Anyway, I get up to this thing and it's like, the, you know, the most mongrel spike <laughs> deer you've ever seen that's gone backwards. And, you know, probably one side's like 11 inches. The other side might be like 18 inches, real wonky <laughs> thing. Anyway, I cut the head off of this thing. It took me like 
five hours to walk back up this hill, absolutely buggered. And, mate, the boys just absolutely gave it to me when I got back to camp <laughs> about this deer head. Like, the people were like, I wouldn't have even carried that thing out the bush. I can't believe you even. But for me, like, that was like the second or third stag I'd ever shot, shot it outright, dropped on you know the walk for me was such a battle of you know mental power to get up back up the hill and it's always going to be and i've got that um that head and i've used it in a couple of my high caliber videos it sits on my workbench in the garage in the shed and um yeah it's it's always going to be a deer i'll remember you know i'm gonna have to go go check it out um i i like those mongrel samba heads like the big handlebar deer that people get well it, yeah, well, a couple of the guys actually said, they're like, look, if you're going to get a mongrel deer, like, you got a good one, you know? Like, you got a good, good head. Like, that's something unique. Like, I've got a really nice symmetrical deer up above me here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, everyone's got, uh, you know, a nice one. Um, but to have such a, you know, unique um, mongrel is, is, was, was cool. Yeah, I, I, I'm a sucker for a good mongrel head. You know, my my red deer last year with Hainsey, that was a pretty pretty mongrel head, just a weird shape, weird weird tines. And then the hog deer this year, um, same same thing. It was you know, what, twelve on one side or and thirteen on the other or whatever it was. But yeah, it was. Uh, I, I love a good mongrel head, and that's what I like about fallow the most. Is they're so like a good. Oh, each one is so unique, eh? A good clefty buck is just just cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So how do you see the public views on hunting and hunters? Uh, Look, I think that, you know, 80% of the population probably don't care either way. And I find it's the – I find that it's meat eaters – uh, that are against hunting that are probably the worst. They're the ones that you just seem to get no sense out of whatsoever. A vegetarian or a vegan, especially an educated one, you can normally kind of have a, a, a sensible conversation and they end up going, well, I'm a vegan and these are my views. And I, I, and then I go, well, look, I respect your views, but you've got to respect mine. And they can. But it's those kind of those guys that will eat meat and go to Coles and buy a chicken, but then moan that you're being cruel to an animal. They're the the ones I think you've got to watch out yeah. for the most. Um, but yeah, like I said, I think 80% of people are just too busy living their own lives to worry too much about it. But like I said before, I reckon hound hunting stopped me getting jobs in the past, you know. Yeah. I reckon some people do look on it badly, especially when you're a customer-facing, um, you know, uh, in a customer-facing role where you, you have some sort of presence in, in that business maybe, yeah, or, or whatever you may do, especially if you're doing YouTube videos or something like that. Um, uh, I think that it's softened over the last couple of years, though. I think a few years ago, especially for me, it seemed like there was a lot of vegans getting voices and, and making ways and being popular. That veganism in what I see seems to have almost vanished. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can I think, see that. So working in a, in the fly shop, do you come across people that are anti hunting? A lot of our customers hunt as well as yeah. fish. Um, and a lot of guys know me from high caliber, know me from the shop, know me from Instagram, whatever. Um, the guys that do know me, I mean, they'll come in and they'll have a chat about hunting too. But for a lot of the regular customers, I'm just 
you know, what Ross behind the counter at the fly shop, you know, that they don't probably know um, the half of, of, of stuff I, I get on with and they probably don't care. Yeah, no, that's, that's understandable. Working, because I worked at BCF for a few years, but, you know, I'd be, I'd be chatting to people and they're like, oh, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I'm going hunting. And then, you know, every second customer was chatting about hunting. So I ran into a couple of people that didn't, didn't like, like talking about hunting. Surprisingly, it was mostly staff that would complain about the, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> complain well, about it. You say that my boss, he's not, you know, he's like more fly fishing talk, please, you know, less, less hunting talk. <laughs> uh, Cause he's not a hunter, but yes, so many of our, of our customers um, are, are hunters too. And so many hunters, you know, on Instagram and, and whatever and who are well-known within Victoria and New South Wales, they also fly fish and fish too, you know. So I feel like it does go hand in hand. Two very different hobbies though. They are, but they're at the end of the day, they're almost the same thing as well. <laughs> they are it's, it's, almost the same thing, but it's like the difference between cars and motorbikes. They both kind of do the same job, but they're totally different beasts. Yeah, hundred percent, and the, they go hand in hand most of the time. Like it's yeah. not very often you'll meet someone that doesn't hunt and fish. No, I think hunters more hunters fish, but less fishermen Fishman's hunt. hunt yeah. If that makes yeah, Renella had a quote about it. It's like not not every every fisherman hunts, but every every hunter fishes almost. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. So, how would you change the public views on hunting and hunters? Uh, I think this is probably going to upset a few people, but sometimes I think we're our own worst enemy. Yep. I think sometimes we don't portray ourselves in the best light. I mean, we probably focus too much on the killing and the gory side of hunting rather than the cooking, bringing family together. You know, no one really is taking pictures of a bunch of blokes around a campfire before a hunt or after a hunt, eating the meat, cooking the meat, preparing the meat. Look, there's definitely people out there doing it, but 99% of hunting shots is a guy gripping, grinning a dead animal. And I'm guilty of it too. And people, you know, see, you know, a well-educated, uh, smarter, faster human with a rifle in their hands and they see an, a stupid, you know, animal that looks beautiful and they're like you've just overpowered that because they don't understand yeah. how difficult it actually is to get those deer on the ground yeah 100 percent agreed um we're definitely we definitely can be our worst enemy and what we post could definitely um definitely hinder hunting for the long run um i'm guilty of it i've posted some stuff that's caused some stuff <laughs> controversy in the past um you know going on media outlets with um cats that don't die instantly doesn't doesn't do any yeah any good for it but um you know you kind of i did you kind of go a little bit uh under the radar for a few years after that because i didn't i saw a lot less of your stuff for a while i reckon no it was just um the page that i had that had um all the followers got got taken down so i tried rebuilding it from there yeah and never really got to where it was and yeah i've started going down the podcasting page so yeah yeah um fair enough i yeah 
what was it? I kind of lost my my train of thought. But yeah, obviously hunters can be their their worst own enemies for sure. I mean, we've sat around campfires plenty of times, going, okay, what can we do? You know, as hunters, you know, and we've always spoken about let's drop meat off at like a homeless shelter. Let's yeah. drop meat off at you know, there's uh, you know, there's things, there's other things we can do, and, and we've said these national parks that are plagued with deer and they want to get them out and they're baiting them and helicopter culling them, why don't they give us, you know, a 10K by 10K square block that yeah. us as hound hunters can go? Each bloke has to pay a $100 permit. We can be in there at, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning, but we have to be out by 11 o'clock, 11 a.m. So we have the morning to hunt. And all of us around the campfire said we'd love to pay $100 each to get into an area where no one has ever hunted before and where the DR are kind of lulled into a sense of security where they think they're never going to be hunted. Um, it, it Not only would it generate money for the government and they wouldn't have to pay helicopter colours, and we could actually utilise the meat for good instead of it rotting and wasting. Um, but, yeah, these things seem to... Uh, common sense doesn't seem to prevail common sense isn't that common yeah exactly and it's the same thing here in south australia you know at least you guys have public public land hunting over there we've got nothing um and the helicopter culling is just increasing um you know they're finding people here in south australia if you're if you've got feral deer on your land um you know they're going through and if you're not controlling them to their standards, people are starting to get fined, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, people would pay a hundred, hundred and fifty bucks to be able to go hunt these parcels of land that should be open to the public to do what we will. Like it's yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I understand deer need to be cold, and there's professional colours out there that make a living from it, and I don't want those to lose their job. But we can have we can come to an arrangement. Obviously, you can hunt half an hour before sunrise and half an hour after sunset. Yep. Maybe say that a hunter can hunt two hours after that, depending on the time of year and, and daylight savings. So you, pro colours only go out with thermal visions at night with a car. Yeah, yeah. You know. Um, and then you don't have helicopter guys, but you have guys that have access to all the tracks that can go out at night with thermals and a crew of people, and they can take deer out. And then yes hunters aren't going to be happy because they're taking deer away from those pop those populated areas but at least you can still hunt and still access those areas and it's kind of a win-win for both parties it's not ideal but it's it keeps both parties semi-happy yeah it's it's definitely a difficult subject you know you get the people every year oh, why did you shoot that that deer you know it was a three-year-old deer it could have had if it grown to six seven years old but, you know, they're, they're the people that don't understand that, you know, the government are going to most likely shoot that deer before it gets to a good head. So it's, you know, it's better someone else taking it and using using all the meat rather than the yeah, helicopters I, yeah. just letting it waste. That's it. I mean, foremost for me, I, I am a meat hunter. Um, it, uh, look, I've done it in the past, but it doesn't sit right with me to shoot an animal and leave it in the bush but yeah. i support hunters and if you're a trophy hunter and that's what you do that's fine i support hunting what you know whatever your means or or whatever of hunting is that that's great but for me personally i'm going out there and i want to take as much of it as i can home yeah, um i'm exactly the same i'm guilty of leaving stuff out in the bush um 
but it's, you know, it is different over here compared to other countries where they have wanted waste laws like America, um, where, you know, a majority of the percentage of the meat has to be used. But, you know, even over in America, when they do the helicopter culling on the pigs, they go through afterwards and they pick up all of those pigs, they take them to butchers, all of that gets transferred into, like, processed, and then all of it gets taken into homeless shelters and they have charities called Hunt for the Homeless where, you know, if you shoot too many deer because you've got so many tags on your property but you've got no freezer space, you can take those deer or you can take these pigs all to get processed and utilize for the homeless it'd be an incredible way to put hunters on the on the platform and get us some good light out there why doing something good yeah that's it and obviously you know people i think a lot of people don't realize that if they ever buy kangaroo mate like it's hip it can kangaroo meat you know it's hipster it's trendy it's kind of in vogue that's hunted you know they're not grown in farms and same with when you see venison in woolies, um, same as when you see wild boar, like wild pig in, in these shops that are starting to have all these different wild game meats. That's all culled animals. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a diff- difficult one. But final question, what is hunting to you? Um, I guess it's like primal um heritage stuff like that you know you hear people say oh you know it's this person or this races or this tribe's tradition to hunt well it is for us too but maybe a lot longer ago but you know you know i'm from the land of knights castles (laughs) people you know robin hood um that bow and arrow hunting tradition has been there forever. Hunting runs so deep in the UK, whether it be horse, um, you know, fox hunting on horseback, deer stalking, um, whatever that may be. It's part of our heritage, our passion, our history too. Um, And that's what it means for me. It's like this primal thing. It's a calling for me. It's not, you know, it's not like something I've ever uh, just woke up one morning and wanted to just pursue for the hell of it or the experience. It was something that I felt like I had to do or I needed to do. Yeah, exactly. I, I can, um, definitely relate to that. You know, you know, it feels natural. It's something that I feel like I'm meant to do. You know, I've tried playing many different sports over the years. My parents tried to get me into football, tennis, soccer, everything over the years. And, nothing I naturally picked up, nothing I was interested in. But yeah, when it came to hunting and fishing and all of that stuff, it's just something that I personally have always been drawn to. No, I'm I'm exactly the same. You know, I, I kind of got forced to do a lot of that um, sport with school and stuff like that. And yeah, I just, just, just did not care in the slightest about it and, and still don't, you know, I don't have a lot of time to watch TV and, and now with two children, I'm home, you know, while they're napping, there is a bit more time to watch TV, but yeah. sport, uh, yeah, sport is just so far off my radar. It's something that's never really resonated with me. Yeah, I'm the same. I'll, I'll, I'll be chatting to Americans or Kiwis and, oh, do you like the AFL? Do you like rugby? And it's not really no like i like hunting i like fishing that's what i do that's who i am (laughs) yeah 
I, I work in hunting and fishing. I, I, I live it. I breathe it. That's kind of when I wake up in the morning, when I go to work, I'm listening to podcasts on it. I'm talking to hunters and fishers every single day. Uh, you know, I'm on fishing trips through work. You know, that's that's just it's kind of where I wanted to be. That's all I wanted to do. And I've always tried to break into that outdoor industry, you know, um, and, and work in that outdoor industry. You know, it's so much pleasure that getting people involved in it, whether it be, you know, fishing or, or hunting, doing these podcasts, people listening to them and gaining tips from us. That That's it. I don't want to ever stop doing that. And I never want to kind of pack up my, my job and just hunt flat out. I want to do everything that involves in that industry exactly and that's what i loved working at bcf was just being able to chat that constantly but unfortunately you know there's not too many full-time jobs and if you do work a full-time job in that type of retail work you have to work weekends and that just gets in the way of family and hunting and fishing (laughs) (laughs) yeah you're right i mean i'm bloody lucky i'm i'm nine to five monday to friday i'm in a very unique position with what i do at the fly fisher it's not your stereotypical retail role that's for sure um i do way more than than just retail in there we we do a lot of stuff um but yeah it's i'm i'm i've kind of fallen on my feet there i guess so Coming up to the end of the podcast, if people want to come see you and they're in Melbourne and they want to get some fly fishing gear or some tips and all of that type of stuff, where do they they come find you? What's the name of the shop again? Yeah, so it's The Fly Fisher um, in South Melbourne. If you want to want to know anything more about fly fishing, get into fly fishing, flick us an email, uh, come into the shop, whatever you want to do there. If you're interested in the products that we produce with High Calibre, it's uh, www.highcalibre.com.au and Calibre spelt the American way, so E-R, not R-E. Um, and I've got a chat function on the website that pings to my phone. Obviously, we've got an Instagram account uh, for both businesses. You can reach out to, to me on, on either of those. Um, we, yeah, and we do have fly fishing podcasts on the Fly Fishers podcast as well. So purely just educational fly fishing based, not really story or, or personality, like, like profile based. So we might get guests on there, but we only talk about a particular facet of fly fishing. We don't talk about, you know, like what, what we're having a chat about history and stuff like that. So, yeah, um, that's how to learn more if you if you want. And where's that podcast found? Is that everywhere podcasts are available? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so it's just the Fly Fishers podcast, and I think yeah, we've got like an RSS uh, host that, so you can get it on um, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Yeah, awesome. I'll I'll definitely have to check that one out. Um, I haven't heard of it before, so I don't. Uh, I've kind of lost my. I was listening to Bent on the Meat Eater one, and that was my fishing podcast. And there's been a void there since they stopped doing the Bent <laughs> fishing yeah. fishing show. So I'll definitely have to check that one out and hopefully learn a thing or two about fly fishing no awesome zach well look thanks so much for having me i've uh, really enjoyed chatting with you and mate like from when i first came to australia trying so hard to learn as much as i can about bow hunting to watching all your videos to actually chatting with you on a podcast has just blown me away to be honest <laughs> no thank you man like you you've actually been on my list of potential guests since i started the podcast since i heard you on send it mate so <laughs> I, was, I was i was pretty happy that you reached out and um 
jumped jumped on it. Like I do this podcast fortnightly, so it's very hard for me to get everyone that I want on. And like you know, yeah, organizing times and stuff. You know, there's especially if overseas guests and stuff like that. So it's always always good when someone reaches out and say, "Hey, I'm I'm keen to do this now. When are you ready?" I'm like, "Yep, let's let's go." So and I I love the products that you you have and just the the whole business strategy that you have as well. So, yeah, look, it's a total passion project. Hey, it was never designed. I remember talking to a guy uh, from the company that makes it and was like, oh, have you got a business plan? Like, what do you want? I said, I want networks. I want contacts. I want to meet people. And he goes, you haven't said anything about money. (laughs) I said, I'm not like this. This is this business is not going to make me money. Like, it's not going to be my day job. But I want to do, you know, podcasts with people. I want to go out on hunts with people. I, you know, I want to have the connections I do with like zero tech optics and Rob Herbert. And that is, that was the reason for the business, you know, Um, uh, you know, and obviously through COVID there, it was uh, something that paid the bills for a while. Um, But yeah, it's, it's a passion project for sure. Yeah. Same with the podcast. I would love to make a living off of it, but um, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to, to get the numbers and all of that type of stuff that you need to, but you know, hence the name hunting connection. Um, I'm, I, I love the whole connection through the hunting, fishing, fishing world. You know, um, when I went over to New Zealand recently, um, there was two Americans hunting with us, um, young guys that Jürgen met in a guiding a guiding school in Montana. So he'd invited them down and I hunted with them. And they're like, oh, we got a five-day layover in Oz. Um, we're flying into Sydney. We're f- flying out of Brisbane. What can we do for those five, six days? I said, hey, I know a guy that's a couple of hours away, Cody. Um, I'll reach out to him and see if he's free and can take you out for a stalk and yeah they they came over and cody took him out and he got some some feral goats and they got to see some reds roaring some fallow croaking and all of this other stuff so it's just that whole connection of the the hunting world why i do this and it's yeah awesome to have these these different connections through it yeah, it is, mate. It is, and and you know that's the 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 driving force behind high caliber for sure. Not the not the orders rolling in or the the you know the money in the bank. That's you know that's that's kind of the icing on the top of the cake. But yeah, it's it's not paying any bills. That's for sure. But this stuff, I get so much enjoyment out of it. And I think hobby business is probably the best way. Like no one makes money out of their hobby. Yeah. But you enjoy every minute of it, and that's exactly where I am. Oh, definitely. If I could. If I could make money off this and quit this tomorrow, uh, quit work tomorrow, I'd be doing, you know, a podcast a day, almost Rogan style. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just to be able to chat hunting and fishing all day, every day in the outdoors and get all this information out there and break down these difficult topics of, you know, why hunting and fishing and all these things are coming under fire all around the world. Awesome. Well, look, like I said before, I really appreciate being on the podcast and thanks for having me. No, I really appreciate you coming on too, mate. So thank you. And yeah, everyone get it. Go over and get yourself some high caliber cleaning stuff. Just fill up that that online shopping cart. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, easy, Ross. Thank you very much, mate. Thank you. Catch ya. Thank you for listening to another episode of Hunting Connection Podcast. Please head over to our social media and give us a follow. 
Instagram at Hunting Connection Podcast, Facebook at Hunting Connection Podcast, Twitter at Hunting Connect, TikTok at Hunting Connection Podcast. If you've enjoyed, please share with your friends and family, tag us in your photos and videos on social media, subscribe, rate and review to help grow the podcast. If you're interested in giving additional support to the podcast, you can head over to our podcast Patreon page. Thank you very much for listening and catch you next episode.